22. And they all lived happily ever after. The end. The world remained surprisingly calm as the maelstrom grew to dwarf the sun in the sky. This was not at all what I had expected. Mortal humans are only a few languages and eccentricities removed from mortal beasts, and it is the nature of beasts to panic at the approach of danger. There were some beastly acts. No looting. The order keepers had always been quick to execute thieves, but many cases of arson and vandalism, as mortals destroyed property to vent their despair. And there was violence, of course. In one of the patriarchal lands, so many men slaughtered their wives and children before killing themselves that one of my siblings got involved. She appeared in the capital, wreathed in falling leaves, and let it be known that she would personally carry the souls of such murderers to the worst of the infinite hells. Even then the killings did not stop entirely, but they did decrease. All this was nothing to what could have been. I had expected, I don't know, mass suicide? Cannibalism, the total collapse of the bright. Instead, Shahar married Daytane Kanru of Tema. It was a small and private ceremony, as there had not been time to prepare for anything better. At my prompting, she asked Deka to administer the rites as first scrivener. And at my prompting, Deka agreed. There were no apologies exchanged. They were both Aramari. But I saw that she was contrite, and I saw that Deka forgave her. Then Shahar had the Order of Etempis spread word of the event by crier and runner and news scroll. She hoped to send a message by her actions. I believe there will be a future. Kenru agreed readily to the marriage, I think, because he was more than a bit in love with her. She, well, she had never stopped loving me, but she genuinely liked him. We all sought our own forms of comfort in those days. I spent my nights in Deka's arms and was humbly grateful for my fortune. So the world went on until its end. We gathered at dawn on the final day. Aramari, notables from Tema, and other lands, common folk from Shadow, Ahad and Glee, Nimmer and a few of the other godlings who had not fled to the realm. The whirl was not as high as Sky had been, but it was as good a vantage point as any. From there, the heavens were a terrible, awe-inspiring sight. More than half of the sky had been devoured by the swirling, wavering transparency. As the sun rose and passed into the space of change, its shape turned sickly and distorted, its light flickering on our skins like a campfire. This was not an illusion. What we saw was literal, despite the impossibility of the angles and distance. Even Tempa's rules for physics and time had been distorted by the maelstrom's presence. Thus, we beheld the slow and tortured end of our sun as it was torn apart and drawn into the great maw. There would be light for a while longer, and then darkness such as no mortal had ever seen, if we lasted that long. I held Deka's hand as we stood gazing at it, unafraid. Alarmed gasps from the center of the world meadow drew my attention. Nahadoth and Yeni had appeared amid the bobbing seagrass. The gathered folk stumbled back from them, though some quickly knelt or began weeping or calling out to them. No one shushed them, for hope had never been a sin. I dragged Deka with me as I pushed through the crowd. Between Nahadoth and Yeni was Etempis. They had brought him. All three of them looked grim, but they would not have come without reason. 
Nahadoth might act without purpose, but Yaney tended not to, and Etempis had never done so. They turned to me as I reached them, and I was suddenly sure of it. You have a plan, I said, squeezing Deka's hand hard. They looked at each other. Beyond the three, Shahar stepped out of the crowd as well, Kanru in her wake. He stopped, gazing at them in awe. Shahar came forward alone, her fists tight at her sides. Etempis inclined his head to me. We do. What? Death. If I had not spent countless eternities enduring his manner, I would have screamed at this. Can you be more specific? There was the faintest twitch of Etempis's lips. Call has called the maelstrom to join with him, he said. He will have to appear in order to take it into himself, and he hopes use its power to become a god. We will kill him and offer it a new seat of power instead. He spread his hands, indicating himself. I caught my breath, horrified as I understood. No, Tempa, you were born from the maelstrom. To return to it, I have chosen this Sia. His voice cut across mine, soothing, definitive. It is the fate my nature demands. I have felt the possibility since Call's summoning. Yaini and Nahadoth have confirmed it. Behind him, Yaini's face was unreadable, serene. Nahadoth, he was almost the same. It was not his nature to contain himself, however. He could not hide his unease entirely, not from me. I scowled at Etempus. What is this, some misguided attempt at atonement? I told you a century ago, you stubborn fool, nothing can make up for your crimes. And what good does it do for you to sacrifice yourself if your death will cause everything to end anyway? The maelstrom may cease its approach if it fulfills Call's purpose, Etempus replied. In this case, creating a new god. We believe the form that this new god takes will depend on the nature and will of the vessel, he shrugged. I will see that what is created is a fitting replacement for myself. I stumbled back, and Deka put a hand on my shoulder in concern. It was the same conjunction of power and will that had forged Yaini into a new Anifa, and where that had been wild, a series of not quite accidental coincidences, now Tempest hoped to control a similar event. But whatever god was created in his place, however stick in the mud that new one might turn out to be, Etempis would die. No, I said. I was trembling. Y you can't. It is the only solution, Sia, said Yaini. I stared at the two of them, so set in their resolve, and did not know what I felt in that moment. Not so long before, I would have rejoiced at the idea of a new Etempis. Even now, it was a temptation, because I might have forgiven him, and I might still love him, but I would never forget what he had done to our family. Nothing would ever be the same for any of us. Would it not be easier somehow, cleaner, to start over with someone new? Knowing a Tempest, the idea had some appeal for him too. He did like things neat. I turned to Nahadoth hoping for something. I didn't know what. But Nahadoth, damn him, wasn't paying attention to any of us. He had turned away to gaze at the swirling sky. Around him, the dark, wreathing tendrils of his presence wheeled in a slow, matching dance, inching higher in random increments as I watched, toward the maelstrom. Wait.
Etimpa spoke his name sharply before my thoughts could crystallize into fear. Yaney, surprised by this, frowned at both her brothers. For a moment, I saw incomprehension in her face, and then her eyes widened. But Naha only smiled, as if it amused him to frighten us. And he kept looking at the maelstrom as if it was the most beautiful sight in the mortal realm. Perhaps we should do nothing, Nahadoth said. Worlds die, gods die. Perhaps we should let all of it go and start anew. Start anew. My eyes met Yaney's across the drift of Naha's blackness. Deka's hand tightened on my shoulder. He understood, too. The unsteady tremor of sorrow that edged Nahadoth's voice. The way his shape kept blurring in time with the maelstrom's perturbations resonating with its terrible churning song. There was no fear in Etempus's face as he took a step toward Nahadoth. He was smiling, in fact. And I marveled, because even though he was trapped in mortal flesh, his smile somehow had all the old power. Nahadoth, too, reacted to this. He lowered his gaze to focus on Etempus, his own smile fading. Perhaps we should, Etempus said. That would be easier than repairing what's broken. The drifting curls of Nahadoth's substance grew still. They shifted aside as Etempus approached Nahadoth, allowing him near, but also curving inward and sharpening into jagged, regular scythes. Fang's jaws ready to close on Etempus's so powerless flesh. Etempus ignored this blatant threat, continuing forward and finally stopping before him. Behind him, Glee stood stiff and wide-eyed. I held my breath. Will you die with me, Nahadoth? He asked. His voice was low, but it carried. We all heard it, even over the twisting, growing shriek of the maelstrom. Is that what you want? Beyond them, perhaps only I saw Yaney's expression tighten, though she said nothing. Anyone could see the delicacy of the spell Tempa had woven, more fragile still because it was nothing but words. He had no magic, no weapons at all for this battle save the history between them, good and ill. Nahadoth did not answer, but then he didn't need to. There were faces he wore only when he meant to kill. They are beautiful faces. Destruction is not his nature, just an art he indulges. But in my mortal shape, I could not look upon them without wanting to die. So I fixed my eyes on Etempus's back. Somehow, despite his mortal shape, Tempa could still bear Naha's worst. The new one, Tempa said very softly. I'll make certain he's worthy of both of you. Then he lifted his hands. I clamped down on my tongue to keep from blurting a warning and cupped Nahadoth's face. I expected his fingers to fall off, for the black depths around Naha had grown lethal, freezing flecks of snow from the air and etching cracks into the ground beneath their feet. It probably did hurt Tempus. They always hurt each other. This did not stop him from leaning close and touching his lips to Nahadoth's. Nahadoth did not return the kiss. Etempus might as well have pressed his mouth to stone. Yet the fact that it had occurred at all, that Nahadoth permitted it, that it was Etempus's farewell, made it something holy. I clenched my fists and fought back tears. I was too old for sentimentality, damn it. Etempus pulled away, his sorrow plain. But as he stood there, his hands hiding Nahado's face from any view but his own, 
Nahas showed him something. I couldn't see what, but I could guess. Because there were faces Naha wore for love, too. I had never seen the one he'd shaped for Etempis, because Etempis guarded that face jealously, as he had always done with Naha's love. But Etempis inhaled at the sight of whatever Naha showed him now, closing his eyes as if Naha had stricken him one last terrible blow. Then he stepped back, and as his hands fell away, Nahado's face resumed its ordinary, shifting nature. With this, Naha turned his back on all of us, his cloak retracting sharply to form a tight, dark sheath around him. Etempus might as well not have been there anymore. But he did not look up at the sky again. When Etempus mastered himself, he glanced at Yaini and nodded. She regarded him for a long, weighted moment, then finally nodded in return. I let out a breath, and Deka did too. I thought perhaps even the maelstrom grew quieter for a moment, but that was probably my imagination. But before I could digest my own relief and sorrow, Nahado's head jerked sharply upward, but not toward the maelstrom this time. The blackness of his aura blazed darker. Call, he breathed. High above, the same place from which he'd struck down the world tree, a tiny figure appeared, wreathed in magic that trembled and wavered like the maelstrom. Before I could think, however, I was nearly floored by the furnace blast of Yaney's rage. She wasted no time in deciding to act. The air simply rippled with negation of life. I flinched, in spite of myself, as death struck call. My son. My unknown, unwanted, unlamented son, whom I would have mentored and protected if I had been able, whose love I would have welcomed if I had been given the choice, did not die. Nothing happened. Nahadoth hissed, his face twitching reptilian. The mask protects him. He stands outside this reality. Death is reality everywhere, Yaini said. I had never heard such murderousness in her voice. There was a shudder beneath us, around us. The townsfolk cried out in alarm, fearing another cataclysm. I thought I knew what was happening, though I could no longer sense it. The earth beneath us had shifted in response to Yaney's hate, the whole planet turning like some massive, furious bodyguard to face her enemy. She spread her hands, crouching, the loose curls of her hair whipping in a gale that no one else felt and her eyes were as cold as long-dead things as they fixed on Kal. On my son. But Nahadoth, his face alight, laughed as her power rose, even as the inimical nature of it forced him to step back. Even Etempus stared at her, pride warring with longing in his gaze. This was as it should be. It was what I had wanted all along, really, for the three to reconcile. But to kill my son. No, that I hadn't wanted. Deka glanced at me and caught my hand suddenly, alarmed. See ya. I frowned, and he lifted a hank of my hair for me to see. It had been brown, streaked thickly with white. Now the white predominated. The few remaining brown strands faded to colorlessness as I watched. It was longer, too. I looked up at Deka and saw the fear in his eyes. I'm sorry, I said, and I truly was, but I never wanted to be a poor father, Deka, I- Stop it, 
He gripped my arm. Stop speaking. Stop thinking about him. You're killing yourself, Sia. So I was. But it would have happened anyway. Damn, Anifa. I would think what I liked, mourn as I wished for the son I had never known. I remembered his fingers on the back of my neck. He would have forgiven me if he could have, I think, if forgiveness had not been counter to his nature. If my weakness had not left him to suffer so much, everything he'd become was my fault. There was a crack of displaced air as Yaney vanished. I could not see what followed. My eyes were not what they had been, and I seemed to be developing cataracts. But there was another crack from high above, a thunder of echoes, and then Nahadoth tensed, his smile fading. Etempest stepped beside him quickly, his fists clenched. No, he breathed. No, Nahadoth echoed, and then he too was gone, a flicker of shadow. What's happening? I asked. Deka squinted above us, shaking his head. Call. It isn't possible. Dear gods, how is he? He caught his breath. Yaini has fallen. Now Nahadoth. What? But there was no time to consider this, because suddenly the space where Nahadoth and Yaini had been was filled again, and we all fell to our knees. Kal wore the god mask, and the power that it radiated was the worst thing I had ever felt in my life. Worse even than the day Etempus forced me into mortal flesh, and that had been like having all my limbs broken so that I could be stuffed into a pipe. Worse than seeing my mother's body or Yaney's when she died her mortal death. My skin crawled, my bones ached. All around me I heard others falling, crying out. The mask was wrong. The emulation of a god, extraneous and offensive to existence itself. In its incomplete form, only godlings had been able to feel the wrongness. But now the god mask radiated its hideousness to all children of the maelstrom mortal and immortal alike. Deka moaned beside me, trying to speak magic, but he kept stuttering. I struggled to stay on my knees. It would have been easier to just lie down and die. But I forced my head up, trembling with the effort, as Call took a step toward Etempus. You're not the one I would have chosen, he said, his voice shivering. Inifa was the original target of my vengeance. I would thank you for killing her, in fact. But here and now, you are the easiest of the three to kill. He stepped closer, raising a hand toward Etempus's face. I'm sorry. Etempus did not back up or drop to the ground, though I saw how the ripple of power around Call pressed at him. It likely took everything he had to stay upright, but that was my bright father. If pride alone had been his nature... No force in the universe could ever have stopped him. Stop, I whispered, but no one heard me. Stop, said another voice, loud and sharp and furious. Glee. Even with my failing eyesight, I could see her. She was on her feet as well, and it was not a trick of the light. A pale, faint nimbus surrounded her. It was easier to see this because the sky had grown overcast. Storm clouds boiling up from the south as a brisk wind began to blow. We could no longer see the maelstrom, except in snatches when the clouds parted, but we could hear it. A hollow, faint roar that would only grow louder. We could feel it, too, 
a vibration deeper than the earth that Yaney had shaken. A few hours, a few minutes, no telling when it would arrive. We would know when it killed us. Etempis, who had not stepped away from Call, stumbled now as he turned to stare at his daughter. There were many things in Glee's eyes in that moment, but I did not notice them for staring at her eyes themselves, which had gone the deep, baleful ember of a lowering sun. Call paused, the god mask turning slightly as he peered at her. What is it that you want, mortal? To kill you, she replied. Then she burst into white-hot flame. All the mortals nearby screamed, some of them fleeing for the stairs. Etempus threw up an arm as he was flung farther back. Ahad beside her cried out and vanished, reappearing near me. Even Kahl staggered, the blur around him bending away from the sheer blazing force of her. I could feel the heat of her fire tightening my skin from where I was ten feet away. Anyone closer was probably risking burns. And Glee herself. When the flames died, I marveled, for she stood clad all in white. Her skirt, her jacket, dear gods, even her hair. The light that surrounded her was almost too bright to look at. I had to squint through watering eyes and the shield of my hand. For an instant, I thought I saw rings, words marching in the air. And in her hands, no, it could not be. In her hands was the white-bladed sword that Etempus had used to cleave apart Nahadoth's chaos and bring design and structure to the earliest iteration of the universe. It had a name, but only he knew it. No one could wield it but him. Hells, no one had ever been able to get near the damn thing. Not in all the eons since he'd created time. But Etempus's daughter held it before her in a two-handed grip, and there was no doubt in my mind that she knew how to use it. Call saw this too, his eyes widening within the mask's slits. But of course he feared it. He had disrupted the order of all things, bringing the maelstrom where it did not belong, and claiming power he had no right to possess. In a contest of strength, he could endure, even against Nahadoth and Yaini, but there is more to being a god than strength. Control said Etempus. He had drawn as close as he could, anxious to advise his daughter. Remember, Glee, or the power will destroy you. I will remember, she said. And then she was gone, and Call was too, both of them leaving a melted, glowing trough across the world's grassy plain. Then two more streaks shot across the horizon in that direction, moving to join the battle. Nahadoth and Yaini. Without Call's power to crush me, I struggled to my feet. Damned knees hurt like someone had lined the joints with broken glass. I ignored the pain and grabbed for Deka, then dragged him over to Ahad. Come on, I said to both of them. Ahad tore his eyes from the dwindling, shining moat that his lover had become. In the distance, plates of spinning darkness swirled out of nowhere, converging on a point. A massive, jagged finger of stone shot up from the earth, hundreds of feet into the sky in seconds. The second god's war had begun, and it was an awesome sight. Even if, this time, it would leave far more than just the mortal realm in ruins. What? Ahad looked dazed when I gripped his arm. Help me get a tempest, I said. When he simply stared at me, 
I jabbed him in the ribs with my gnarled fists. He glared. I stepped closer to shout into his face. Pay attention, we have to go. With that kind of power in play, Glee won't last long. Nahadoth and Yaney might be able to stop him. I hope. We can pray. But if not, he's going to come back here. I pointed at Etempus, who was also staring after Glee. His fists clenched. Finally understanding, Ahad caught my arm. I was holding Deka. There was a flicker as we moved through space, and then Ahad had Etempus by the arm as well. Etempus looked startled, but cottoned on faster than Ahad had. He did not fight. But then Ahad frowned. Where can we go that he won't find us? I almost wailed the words. Anywhere, anywhere, you fool. The planet was going to die. All reality was beginning to falter, bleeding out through the mortal wound that the maelstrom had punched into its substance. All we could do was start running, anywhere we could, and hope that Call did not catch up. Though if he did, dear gods, I hope you found your nature by now. Ahad's face went too impassive. No. Demon shitting Braxgafra. There was a hollow whoosh behind me, louder even than the maelstrom's growing roar, and Deka turned quickly, barking a command to counter whatever I'd stupidly unleashed. The sound went silent. Deka glared at me. Sorry, I muttered. Anywhere, Ahad said. But he was looking away from us. Something bloomed against the horizon, like a round, white sun. I wanted to cheer for magnificent demon girls, but the light died too quickly for me to feel comfortable. And then Ahad took us away from the palace. With his attention so thoroughly divided, I should have realized where we would end up. When the world resolved around us, we stood on tumbled white stones littered with the debris of everyday life. Torn bedsheets, broken perfume bottles, an overturned toilet. Looming high overhead, broken, wilting limbs as thick as buildings. Sky? I rounded on Ahad, wishing for once that I had a cane. I had to shout to be heard over the rising cacophony, but that was fine because I was furious. You brought us to Sky? You stupid son of a demon! What were you thinking? I. But whatever Ahad might have retorted died in his mouth as his eyes widened. He whirled, looking north, and we all saw it. A great amorphous blotch of blackness was fading from view. But against its contrast, we could see a tiny blazing white star, falling and winking out of sight as it fell. Ahad took a great, shuddering breath, and the air around him turned the color of a bruise. The sound that he made was less a word than an animal-maddened shriek. For an instant, he became something else, shapeless and impossible. And then we were all flung sprawling as day stone and tree wood and the air itself whipped into an instant tornado around him. He was a god, and his will forged reality. All the matter nearby hastened to do his bidding. Then he was gone, and all the debris that had been blasted away in his wake pelted onto whatever body parts we'd been foolish enough to turn upright. I pushed myself up slowly, trying to get a broken tree branch off my back and daystone dust out of my mouth. My hands hurt. Why did my hands hurt? I'd never had arthritis on any of the previous occasions I'd become old. Then again, 
that had been old age as I'd imagined it. Perhaps the reality was simply more unpleasant than I'd thought. Hands grabbed me, helping me up. Deka. He pushed the branch away, then brushed my hair out of my face. It was waist-length now, though thin and stringy white. No matter how old I got, the stuff kept growing. Why couldn't I go bald, damn it? Should have seen that coming, I muttered as he helped me to my feet. Seen what? Thinny Tempest was there, also helping me. Between the two of them, I was able to scramble over to the jagged, unstable stones of the fallen sky. That one. Etempus nodded in the direction Ahad had gone. In another life, I would have laughed at his refusal to use Ahad's borrowed name. Apparently, his nature has something to do with love. No wonder it had taken Ahad so long to find himself. He had lived the past century in the antithetical prison of his own apathy. And his centuries of suffering in Sky had probably not predisposed him to attempt love, even when the opportunity came along. But Glee... I bit my lip. In spite of everything, I prayed that she would be all right. I did not want to lose my newest sister, and I did not want this other, surrogate son of mine, to discover himself through grief. It is not an easy thing to climb a pile of rubble the size of a small city. It is harder when one is a half-blind old man of 80 or so. I kept having to stop and catch my breath, and my coordination was so poor that after a few close calls and nearly broken ankles, E. Tempest stepped in front of me and told me to climb onto his back. I would have refused out of pride, but then Deka, damn him, picked me up bodily and forced me to do it. So I locked my arms and legs around E. Tempest, humiliated, and they ignored my complaints and resumed climbing. We did not speak as the maelstrom's roar grew louder. This was not merely because of the noise, but also because we were waiting and hoping. But as we kept climbing and the moments passed, that hope faded. If Yaney and the others had been able to defeat Call, they would have done it by now. The universe still existed. That meant the two gods were alive at least. Beyond that, no news was not good news. Where can we go? Deka had to shout to be heard. All around us was a charging, churning monstrosity of sound. I made out bird whistles and men shouting as if in agony, ocean surf and rock grating against metal. It did not hurt our ears, not yet, but it was not pleasant either. I can take us away once, maybe twice, he said, and then looked ashamed. I don't have a god's strength or even... He looked toward where Glee had fallen. I hoped Ahad had managed to catch her. But anywhere in the mortal realm, Call will find us, even if he doesn't. We all paused to look up. High above, the clouds had begun to boil and twist in a way that had nothing to do with weather patterns. Would the great storm stop there in the sky, once it reached the place from which it had been summoned? Or would it simply plow through and leave a void where the earth had been? Back to Echo, then. Deka and I could join with Shahar again, attempt to control what we had done only by instinct before. But even as I thought this, I dismissed it. Too much discord between Shahar and Deka now. We might just make things worse. I leaned my head on Etempus's broad shoulder, sighing. I was tired. It would be easier, so much easier, 
if I could just lie down now and rest. But as I thought this, suddenly I knew what could be done. I lifted my head. Tempa. He had already stopped, probably to catch his breath, though he would never admit such a thing. He turned his ear toward me to indicate that he was listening. How long does it take you to return to life when you die? The time varies between 10 and 50 minutes. He did not ask why I wanted to know. Longer if the circumstances that caused me to die remain present. I revive, then die again immediately. Where do you go? He frowned. It was hard to make my voice work at this volume. While you're dead, where do you go? He shook his head. Oblivion. Not the heavens, not the hells. No, I am not dead, but I am not alive either. I hover between. I wriggled to get down, and he set me on my feet. I nearly fell at once. The circulation in my legs had been cut off by his arms, and I hadn't even felt it. Deka helped me to sit on a rough piece of what I think had once been a part of the Garden of the Hundred Thousand. Groaning, I massaged one of my legs, nodding irritably for Deka to take the other, which he did. I need you to die, I said to Tempa, who lifted an eyebrow, just for a while. And then, using as few words as I could to save my voice, I told them my plan. Dika's hands tightened on my calf. He made no protest, however, for which I was painfully grateful. He trusted me, and if he helped me, I would be able to pull my biggest trick ever. My last trick. Please. I said to Tempa. He said nothing for a long moment. Then he sighed, inclining his head, and took off his coat, handing it to me. Then, as coolly as though he did such things every day, he looked around, spying a thin, fine extrusion jutting up from the pile. A piece of the wind harp. It was a wickedly sharp spear, perhaps four feet long, angled straight up in the air. Tempa examined it flicked away a scrap of faded cloth that wrapped around its tip and yanked it to the side, jostling loose a good bit of rubble while he positioned it to his liking. When he'd gotten it to about a 45-degree angle, he nodded in satisfaction and fell forward onto it, sliding down its shaft until friction or bone or gods knew what stopped him short. Deka cried out, leaping to his feet, though it was too late, and he'd known it was going to happen anyhow. He protested because that was just the kind of man he was. I reached up to take Deka's hand, and he turned to me, his face still writ in lines of horror. How had an Aramary been born with a soul as perfect as his? I was so glad I'd lived to see it, and to know him. He proved his worth again when grim determination replaced horror in his eyes. He helped me to my feet, handing me Tempa's coat, which I put on. The wind had risen to a gale, and I was a skinny, frail old man. We both looked up then, startled, as a sound like wailing horns filled the sky and the clouds tore apart. Above us, filling the sky, a new and terrible god appeared, the Maelstrom. What we saw was not its true self, of course, which was vaster than all existence, let alone a single word. Like everything that entered the mortal realm, it had shaped an approximation of itself, 
churning clouds, the sun stretched into glowing candy, a string of floating pieces of worlds and shattered moons trailing in its wake. In its boiling surface, we could see ourselves and the world around us, a reflection distorted and magnified. Our faces screamed, our bodies broke and bled. The imminent future. Deka turned his back to me and crouched. Speech was no longer possible now. Soon our ears would rupture, which would be a blessing, because otherwise the roar would destroy our sanity. I climbed onto Deka's back, pressing my face into his neck so that I could breathe his scent one last time. Ignoring my sentimentality, he closed his eyes and murmured something. I felt the markings on his back grow hot and then cold against my chest. Gods do not fly. Flying requires wings and is inefficient in any case. We leap and then stick to the air. Anyone can do it. Most mortals just haven't learned how. There's a trick to it, see. Deka's first leap took us nearly into the maelstrom. I groaned and clung to him as the thunder of the storm above us grew so great that I lost the feeling in my hands, nearly lost my grip entirely. But then somehow, Deka corrected his error arcing down now toward the god's battle, which was not over. There was a flash of darkness, and we passed through a space of coldness, Nahadoth. Then warm air, redolent of spores and rotting leaves, Yaini. Both still alive, and still fighting, and winning, I was glad to see. They had dissipated their forms, corralling Call into a thickening sphere of combined power so savage that I urged Deka to stop well away, which he did. At the center of the sphere was Call, raging, blurring, but contained. The god mask had made him one of them temporarily, but no false god could challenge two of the three for long. To win, Call would have to make his transformation permanent. To do that, he would need strength he didn't have. Which was why I, his father, offered that to him now. I closed my eyes and with everything that I was, sent my presence through the ethers of this world and every other. The swirling, searing forms of Yaini and Nahadoth stopped, startled. Call spun within the shell that held him, and I thought that his eyes marked me from within the mask. Come. I said, though I had no idea whether he could hear my voice. I prayed it, shaping my thoughts around fury to make sure. My poor Hemen, whom I'd never been able to bless. All the dead of sky and shadow, glee and ahad, and he wanted he tempest my father? No. It was not difficult to summon a craving for vengeance in my own heart. Then carefully, I masked this with sorrow. That wasn't hard to dredge up either. Come, I said again. You need power, don't you? I told you to accept your nature. Anifa threw you in a hole somewhere, left you forgotten and forsaken for me. You cannot forgive me for that. Come then and kill me. That should give you the strength you need. Within his glimmering prison, Call stared at me. But I knew I'd baited the trap well. He was vengeance, and I was the source of his oldest and deepest pain. He could no more resist me than I could a ball of string. He hissed and flexed what remained of his power, a miniature maelstrom straining to break free. Then I felt the unstable surge of his elanted nature, 
amplifying the god mask and waxing powerful enough that the shell Naha and Yeni had woven around him cracked into smoking fragments. Then he came for me. This was my gift to him, father to son, the least I could offer and far less than I should have done. My Deka. He never wavered. Not even when the outermost edges of Carl's blurring rage struck and began to shred his skin. We both screamed as our bones snapped, but Deka did not drop me. Not even when Carl wrapped his arms around both of us, tearing us apart by sheer proximity in an embrace that he'd probably intended as a parody of love. Perhaps there was even a bit of real love in it. Vengeance was nothing if not predictable. Which was why, with the last of my strength, I reached into Etempus's coat, pulled out the dagger coated with Gleeshoth's blood, and shoved it into Carl's heart. He froze, his green, sharp fold eyes going wide within the god mask. The power around him went still, as the calm within a storm. My hands were bleeding, mangled claws, but thankfully they were still the hands of a trickster. I snatched the god mask from Carl's face. This was easy as he was already dead. As it came away, his face, so like mine, stared at me with empty eyes. Then all three of us began to fall, separating. Call slid off the knife as we twisted in the air. I hung on to it by sheer force of will. But there came a jolt, and I found Yaney leaning into the diminishing plane of my vision. See ya. Such was her voice that I could hear her even over the great storm. I felt her power gather to heal me. I shook my head, having no strength to talk. I had enough left just to raise the god mask to my face. I saw her eyes widen when I did this, and she tried to grab my arms. Silly former mortal. If she had used magic, she could have stopped me. Then the mask was on me. It was on me. It was on me, and I... I smiled. Yaney had released me crying out. I'd hurt her. I hadn't meant to. We gods just have opposing natures. She fell and Deka fell. Yaney would be all right. Deka would not. But that was fine too. It had been his choice. He had died like a god. Nahadoth coalesced before me, just beyond the range of my painful vibrating aura. His face was a study in betrayal. See ya, he said. I had heard him too. He looked at me the way he looked at Etempus these days. That was worse than what I'd done to Yaney. I felt sudden pity for my bright father and prayed, to no one in particular, that Nahadoth would forgive him soon. What have you done? He demanded. Nothing yet, my dark father. I won't say I wasn't tempted. I had what I'd yearned for. It would be easy, so easy, to go and kill Tempa with the knife, as he had killed Anifa long ago. Easy, too, to absorb the maelstrom, make the transformation permanent, take E. Tempest's place. I could be Naha's lover in earnest then, and share him with Yaney, and make all of us a new three. I heard a song promising this in the maelstrom's ratcheting scream. But I was Sia the whim and the wind, the eldest child and trickster, source and culmination of all mischief. 
I would not tolerate being some cheap imitation of another god. So I turned, the power coming easily as my flesh remembered itself. A beautiful feeling, greater than anything I had ever known. And this wasn't even real godhood. Closing my eyes, I spread my arms and turned to face the maelstrom. Come, I whispered with the voice of the universe. And it came, its wild substance passing into me through the filter of the god mask, remaking me, fitting me into existence like a puzzle piece, which worked only because Etempus's temporary absence had left a void. Without that, my presence, a fourth, would have torn it all apart. In fact, when Etempus next awoke, the sundering would begin. Thus, I raised the knife coated with my son's blood. There was plenty of glees left, too, I hoped. Though really, there was only one way to find that out. I drove the knife into my breast and ended myself. 23. In the sky above, just when it seemed the maelstrom would crush everything, it suddenly winked out of existence, leaving a painful silence. As I pushed myself up from where I'd been curled on the ground, my hands clamped over my ears. Lord Nahadoth appeared, carrying my brother. Then came Lord Ahad, bringing a newly revived Lordy Tempest and a badly wounded Gleeshoth. A moment later, Lady Yaney arrived, bearing Sia. I am Shahar Aramari, and I am alone. I issued an edict to the consortium, summoning them to Echo, and to this I added a personal invitation for Usain Dar, and any allies that she chose to bring. To make my position clear, I phrased the note thus, to discuss the terms of the Aramari surrender. Mother always said that if one must do something unpleasant, one should do it wholeheartedly and not waste effort on regret. I invited representatives from the Lataria as well, and the Merchants Guild, and the Farmers Collective, and the Order of Etempus. I even summoned a few beggars from Ancestors Village, and artists from Shadow's Promenade. As Lord Ahad was indisposed, he would not leave the bedside of Gleeshoth, who had been healed but slept in deep exhaustion. I included an invitation to several of the gods of Shadow, where they could be located. Most of them, not entirely to my surprise, had remained in the mortal realm as the disaster loomed. It was not the gods' war again. They cared about us this time. To wit, ladies Nimmer and Kitter responded in the affirmative, saying that they would attend. The Lataria's involvement meant that all parties could gather quickly, as they sent scriveners forth to assist those mortals who could not hire their own. Within less than a day, Echo played host to several of the world's officials and influencers, decision-makers and exploiters. Not everyone who mattered, of course, and not enough of those who didn't. But it would do. I had them gather in the temple, the only space large enough to hold them all. To address them, I stood where my brother and my best friend had shown me how to love. I could not think of that and function, so I thought of other things instead. And then I spoke. I told everyone there that we, the Aramari, would give up our power. Not to be distributed among the nobles, however, which would only invite chaos and war, 
Instead, we would give the bulk of our treasury and management of our armies to a single new governing body that was to consist of everyone in the room or their designated representatives. The priests, the scriveners, the godlings, the merchants, the nobles, the common folk. All of them. This body, by vote, edict, or whatever method they chose, would rule the hundred thousand kingdoms in our place. To say that this caused consternation would be understating the case. I left as soon as the shouting began, unconscionable for an Aramary ruler, but I no longer ruled. And like most mortals who had been near the maelstrom that day, my ears were sensitive, still ringing despite my scrivener's healing scripts. The noise was bad for my health. So I sought out one of the peers of Echo. A few hadn't been damaged by the palace's precipitous flight from ocean to lake. The view from here was of the lake shore, with its ugly, sprawling survivors' encampment. Not the ocean I craved, or the drifting clouds I would never stop missing. But perhaps those were things I never should have gotten used to in the first place. A step behind me. You actually did it. I turned to find Usain Dar standing there. A thick bandage covered her left eye and that side of her face. One of her hands had been splinted. There were probably other injuries hidden by her clothing and armor. For once, I saw none of Wrath's constantly hovering guards about, but Usain did not have a knife in her good hand, which I took as a positive sign. Yes, I said. I did it. Why? I blinked in surprise. Why are you asking? She shook her head. Curiosity? A desire to know my enemy? Boredom? By my training, I should never have smiled. I did it anyway, because I no longer cared about my training, and because I was certain it was what Daka would have done. Sia, I suspected, would have gone a step further, because he always went a step further. Perhaps he would have offered to babysit her children. Perhaps she would even have let him. I'm tired, I said. The whole world isn't something one woman should bear on her shoulders. Not even if she wants to. Not even if she has help. And I no longer did. That's it? That's it. She fell silent, and I turned back to the railing as a light breeze, redolent of algae and rotting crops and human sorrow, wafted over the lake from the land beyond. The sky was heavily overcast as if threatening a thunderstorm, but it had been so for days without rain. The lords of the sky were in mourning for their lost child. We would not see the sun or the stars for some time. Let Hussein knife me in the back if she wished. I truly did not care. I am sorry, she said at length. About your brother and your mother and... She trailed off. We could both see the tree's corpse in the distance. It blocked the mountains that had once marked the horizon. From here, sky was nothing more than tumbled white jewels around its broken crown. I was born to change this world, I whispered. Pardon? Something the matriarch, the first Shahar, reportedly said. I smiled to myself. It isn't a well-known quote outside the family because it was blasphemous. Bridey Tempest abhors change, you see. Hmm. I suspected she thought I was mad. That was fine, too. 
After a time, Usain left, probably returning to the temple to battle for Dar's fair share of the fortune. I should have gone, too. The Aramari were, if nothing else, the royal family of the numerous and fractious tribes of the Amun race. If I did not fight for my people, we might be shortchanged in the time to come. So be it, I decided, and hitched up my gown to sit against the wall. It was Lady Yaney who found me next. She appeared quietly, seated on the railing I had just leaned against. Though she looked the same as always, relentlessly darin. Her clothing had changed. Instead of pale gray, the tunic and calf pants she usually wore were darker in color. Still gray, but a color that matched the lowering storm clouds above. She did not smile, her eyes olive with sorrow. What are you doing here? She asked. If one more person, mortal or God, asked me that question, I was going to scream. What are you doing here? I asked in return. An impertinent question, I knew, for the God to whom my family now owed its allegiance. I never would have dared it with Lordy Tempest. Yaney was less intimidating, however, so she would have to deal with the consequences of that. An experiment, she said. I was privately relieved that my rudeness did not seem to bother her. I am leaving Nahadoth and Tempest alone together for a while. If the universe comes apart again, I'll know I made a mistake. If my brother had not been dead, I would have laughed. If her son had not been dead, I think she would have too. Will you release him? I asked. E. Tempest? It has already been done. She sighed, drawing up one knee and resting her chin on it. The three are whole again, if not wholly united, and not exactly rejoicing at our reconciliation. Perhaps because there is no reconciliation. That will take an age of the world, I imagine. But who knows? It has already gone faster than I expected. She shrugged. Perhaps I'm wrong about the rest, too. I considered the histories I had read. He was to be punished for as long as the Anifida, two thousand years in some. Or until he learned to love truly. She said nothing more. I had seen Etempus weep beside the body of his son, silent tear tracks cleansing the blood and dirt from his face. This had been nothing meant for a mortal's eyes, but he had permitted me to see it, and I was keenly conscious of the honor. At the time, I'd had no tears of my own. And I had seen Lord Etempus put a hand on the shoulder of Lord Nahadoth, who knelt beside Sia's corpse without moving. Nahadoth had not shaken that hand off. By such small gestures are wars ended. We will withdraw, Lady Yaney said, after a time of silence. Naha and Tempa and I, completely this time. There is much work to be done, repairing the damage that the Maelstrom did. It takes all our strength to hold the realms together, even now. The scar of its passage will never fade completely, she sighed. And it has finally become clear to me that our presence in the mortal realm does too much harm, even when we try not to interfere. So we will leave this world to our children, the godlings, if they wish to stay. And you mortals too, and the demons, if there are any left or any more born, she shrugged. If the godlings get out of hand, ask the demons to keep them in line, or do it yourselves. 
none of you are powerless anymore. I nodded slowly. She must have guessed my thoughts or read them in my face. I was slipping. He loved you, she said softly. I could tell you drove him half mad. At that, I did smile. The feeling was mutual. We sat then, gazing at the clouds and the lake and the broken land, both of us thinking unimaginable thoughts. I was glad for her presence. Daytona tried, and I was growing to care for him, but it was hard to keep the pain at bay sometimes. The mistress of life and death, I feel certain, understood that. When she got to her feet, I did too, and we faced each other. Her tiny size always surprised me. I thought she should have been like her brothers, tall and terrible, showing some hint of her magnificence in her shape. But that was what I got for thinking like an almond. Why did it begin? I asked. And because I was used to how gods thought, and that question could have triggered a conversation about anything from the universe to the gods' war and everything in between, I added, Sia, how did we make him mortal? Why did we have such power over him, with him? Was it because... It was difficult for me to admit, but I'd had the Scriveners test me, and they had confirmed my suspicions. I was a demon, though the god-killing potency of my blood was negligible, and I had no magic, no specialness. Mother would have been so disappointed. It had nothing to do with you, Yanny said softly. I blinked. She looked away, sliding her hands into her pockets, a gesture that tore at my heart, because Sia had done it so often. He'd even looked like her, a little. By design? Knowing him? Yes. But what? I lied, she said, about us staying wholly out of the mortal realm. There will be times in the future when we'll have no choice but to return. It will be our task to assist the godlings, you see, when the time of metamorphosis comes upon them, when they become gods in their own right. I jerked in surprise. Become what? Like Kal? No. Kal sought to force nature. He wasn't ready for it. Sia was. She let out a long sigh. I didn't begin to understand until Tempa said that whatever Sia had become, he was meant to become his bond with you, losing his magic. Perhaps these are the signs we'll know to watch for next time. Or perhaps those were unique to Sia. He was the oldest of our children, after all, and the first to reach this stage. She looked at me and shrugged. I would have liked to see the god he became, though I still would have lost him then, even if he'd lived. I digested this in wonder and felt a little fear at the implications. Godlings could grow into gods? Did that mean gods, then, could grow into things like the Maelstrom? If they could somehow live long enough, would mortals become godlings? Too many things to think about. What do you mean you would have lost him if he'd lived? This realm can abide only three gods. If Sia had survived and become whatever he was meant to be, his fathers and I would have had to send him away. Death or exile? Which would I have preferred? Neither. I want him back in Deca too. But where could he have gone? Elsewhere. She smiled at my look, with a hint of Sia's mischief. Did you think the universe was all there was?
There's room out there for so much more. Her smile faded then, just a little. He would have enjoyed the chance to explore it too, as long as he didn't have to do it alone. The goddess of Earth looked at me then, and suddenly I understood. Sia, Deka, and I. Nahadoth, Yeni, and Etempis. Nature is cycles, patterns, repetition. Whether by chance or some unknowable design, Deka and I began Sia's transition to adulthood. And perhaps, when the chrysalis of his mortal life had finally split to reveal the new being, he would not have transformed alone. Would I have wanted to go with him and Deka to rule some other cosmos? Just dreams now, like broken stone. Ganey dusted off her pants, stretched her arms above her head and sighed. Time to go. I nodded. We will continue to serve you, lady, whether you're here or not. What prayer shall we say for you at the dawn and twilight hour? She threw me an odd look, as if checking to see if I was joking. I wasn't. This seemed to surprise and unnerve her. She laughed, though it sounded a bit forced. Say whatever you want, she said finally. Someone might be listening, but it won't be me. I have better things to do. She vanished. Eventually, I wandered back into the palace and to the temple, where the assembly was breaking up at last. Merchants and nobles and scriveners drifted down the hall in knots, still arguing with each other. They ignored me completely as I came to the temple entrance. Thanks for leaving, said Lady Nemmer, as she emerged looking thoroughly disgruntled. We got exactly one thing done, aside from setting a date for a future useless meeting. I smiled at her annoyance. She scowled back, the room growing oddly shadowed. But she wasn't really angry, so I asked, And the thing you got done was? We chose a name. She waved a hand, irritable. A pretentious and needlessly poetic one. But the mortals outnumbered Kitter and I, so we couldn't vote it down. Atternet. It's one of our words. It means I cut her off. I don't need to know, Lady Nimmer. Please convey to whoever's speaking for this Atternet that they should inform me when they're ready for the transfer of military command and funds. She looked at me in real surprise, then finally nodded. We turned at the sound of someone calling my name from down the corridor. Detonay. He sat in on the Atternet's session, I would have to quickly dissuade him from doing that, now that he was my husband. Beyond him was Romina, who watched me with a solemn sorrow in his expression that I understood completely. He caught my eye over the heads of a gaggle of shouting priests and smiled, however, inclining his head in approval. It warmed me. I would need to have his true sigil removed sometime soon. And I would need to send a note to Murad, I reminded myself. She'd quit her position and gone home to Southern Sinem, to no one's surprise. Still, I hoped to entice her back eventually. Competent stewards were hard to find. I would not press Murad, however. She deserved the time and space to mourn in her own way. While Detonay approached, I inclined my head to Nimmer in farewell. Welcome to ruling the world, Lady Nimmer. I wish you enjoyment of it. She spoke a god word so foul that one of the nearby lanterns turned to melted metal and oil sludge and crashed to the floor. As I walked away, I heard her cursing again, 
and some mortal tongue this time, more softly as she bent to clean up the mess. Detene met me halfway down the hall. He hesitated before offering me his hand. Once, I had discouraged him from displaying affection in public. Now, however, I took his hand firmly, and he blinked in surprise, flashing a smile. These people are all mad, I said. Take me away from here. As we walked away, something pulsed hot between my breasts, and I remembered I had forgotten to tell Lady Yaney about the necklace we'd found on Sia's body. The cord had been broken, half the smaller beads lost to whatever had snapped it. But the central bead, the peculiar yellow one, was fine. It was surprisingly heavy, and sometimes, if I was not imagining things, it became oddly warm to the touch. I had put the thing on a chain around my own neck because I felt better wearing it, less alone. Lady Yaney would not mind if I kept it, I decided. Then I stroked the little sphere as if to comfort it, and walked on. Coda Shahar Aramari died in bed at the age of 70, leaving two daughters and a son, half Timon Fullbloods, unmarked by any sigil, to carry on the family. The Aramari still owned many businesses and properties, and they remained one of the most powerful clans on the Sinem continent. They just had less. Shahar's children immediately began scheming to get more upon her death, but that is a matter for other tales. The godling Nahad, called beloved by his fellow godlings, watched over Glishoth for the entire year that she slept after her legendary battle with Kal. When she finally awoke, he took her away from Echo and the new city developing around its lake. They settled in a small northwestern Sinem town, where they spent some years looking after an elderly, blind Marrow woman until her death. There they remained for another hundred years or so, never marrying, raising no children, but always together. She lived a long time for a mortal, and gave him a proper name of his own before she died. He tells no one that name, it is said, guarding it like something precious and rare. Those mortals who worshipped the goddess of Earth claimed ownership of the corpse of the world tree. By the time of Shahar's death, they had excavated and preserved enough of its trunk to house a small city, which began to call itself World. They lived in the tree and on it, said their prayers at the skeleton of its roots, dedicated their sons and daughters to its broken branches. Fires and fire godlings were not allowed in this city. They lit their chambers at night with pieces of sky. The Atternet, well, it was not eternal, but that, too, is a matter for other tales. So many tales, really. They are sure to be exciting. A shame that I will get to hear none of them. I, oh yes. When Shahar exhaled her last breath, I awakened, midwifed into existence by her mortality. My first act was to turn in space and time and kiss Deka awake beside me. Then I called to my inn, and it shot across realities and blazed into joyous, welcoming life somewhere far, far beyond the realms of the three. It would be the seed star of a new realm. Our realm. It sent out great arcing plumes of fire, city little ball of gas, 
and I petted it silent and promised it worlds to warm just as soon as I'd taken care of other business. Then we found Shahar and gathered her up and took her with us. She was, to say the least, surprised, but not displeased. We are together now, the three of us, for the rest of forever. I will never be alone again. My name is Natsia, and I am no longer a trickster. I will think of a new name and calling, eventually. Or some one of you, my children, will name me. Make of me, of us, whatever you wish. We are yours until time ends, and perhaps a little beyond. And we will all create such wonderful new things, you and we, out here beyond the many skies. This has been a Hachette Audio production of The Kingdom of Gods, Book 3 of the Inheritance Trilogy, written by N.K. Jemison, read by Cassandra Freeman, produced by Tommy Heron, directed by Peter Gannon, recorded by Jake Shives at Tempermill Studios, post-production by Gabino Reyes. The Kingdom of Gods is also available in print and digital formats from Orbit, a division of Hachette Book Group. For more Hachette Audio productions, visit us at hachetteaudio.com. Thank you for listening. Text copyright 2011 by N.K. Jemison. Audio production copyright 2018 by Hachette Audio. All rights reserved. Hachette Book Group supports the right to free expression and the value of copyright. The purpose of copyright is to encourage writers and artists to produce the creative works that enrich our culture. The duplicating, uploading, and distribution of this audiobook without permission is a theft of the author's intellectual property. If you would like permission to use material from the audiobook, other than for review purposes, please contact permissions at hbgusa.com. Thank you for your support of the author's rights. This audiobook is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are either the product of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously, and any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, events or locales, is entirely coincidental. Coincidental.